My name is Ali. I'm a doctor turned YouTuber. I'm Taymor. I'm a data scientist turned startup founder. We're two brothers living in London, and you're listening to Not Overthinking, the weekly podcast where we talk about life, happiness, and the human condition. Hi, everyone. In this episode, we talk about a book called The Case Against Sexual Revolution. We do talk about some pretty sensitive topics, and some of these might be triggering for some people. And so uh, if you think this episode might not be for you, um, then don't continue watching. Thanks. Hello, and welcome back to Not Overthinking. Tamor, how are you doing today? Mate, I'm knackered. It's so early. It's, it's half past seven in the morning. Yeah, man. It's glorious. What time did you sleep last night? I slept like 1 a.m. last night. And then the night before, I also had like six hours sleep. Uh, life's so hard isn't it life's difficult why do you why are you so sleep deprived these days i don't know man like the night before i had a bunch of work i needed to do you had to do work overnight the work can't wait until 9 a.m the next day <laughs> no why not because there's other stuff to do at 9 a.m the next day yeah it was actually a really productive sesh from midnight to 3 a.m i think i might have to make that a regular thing <laughs> and then okay. wake up later yeah, I mean, I was I was trying that with writing. It's a pretty solid solid way of getting some deep work done. Yeah. I guess, though, you've got people in US time zones. As in, were you working with people or was it just... No, no, just solo, stuff? just solo stuff in the zone. Yeah, because what, what my uh, editor was saying is that often writers find it easier to write at night where you know you don't have any work obligations. Right. Whereas you can tell yourself all you like that I'm going to write for three hours in the morning, but that requires you a part of your brain actively ignoring all the slack messages and yeah, everything that's coming yeah, your way. Yeah. Yeah. So a bit sleep deprived. But Hang on. But like this is wh- why is it that you you run your own company and you can theoretically do what you want and yet you have work that has to be done at three o'clock in the morning and can't wait until nine o'clock the next day? Like how does how does that happen in the life of a startup founder? There's a couple of things I need to push forward over the next three to four weeks. Hmm. And those things are individual things which are separate from what most of the other folks are up to. Okay. And during the day, I have some calls. And You're just yawning off in, in, in every sentence. <laughs> during the day, if I have some calls and lots of messages that I have to respond to and stuff like that, it's very hard to actually get that stuff done. And so, yeah, I mean, one option would be for me to prioritize my sleep and tell the other stuff that it's not going to happen or tell people that hey i'm not going to do xyz and like to be fair yesterday i did do that i canceled a bunch of stuff because i was like hey no i just need to focus on this thing Mm. but even then it feels like there's not enough time but i don't think it'll be a regular occurrence or maybe it would i don't know it was fairly productive sesh if i can if i start waking up later maybe i could make that a more regular thing yeah just don't schedule anything until like at least noon now you always then you always have the morning free. Yeah, and and, so, and yeah. like a bunch of the team are in the US, so yeah. you waking up later would actually be more. Yeah, important. I find that like the very little, very little with US people obviously tends to happen in the in the actual morning. Mm. And so, on my days where I was doing the writing and I was just banging out writing until two or three a.m. and waking up at like ten, I was way more productive than had I allegedly tried to sleep at a normal hour, mm. wake up at seven, theoretically do three or four hours of work in the yeah, morning. Yeah. Because the sleeping at a normal hour ends up inevitably just not happening. Yeah, that's so Because it's somewhat incompatible with a thriving social life Yeah, uh, to sleep at a, at a reasonable hour. Whereas if you have that flex time in the morning, if you wake up early and you're refreshed and it's like, great, yes, I've just unlocked a few extra hours in the day. Yeah. But otherwise, the night time becomes like the deep work time. And then 1 p.m. till 8 p.m. or whatever can be your 
mm. I met anyone else at anyone else's beck and call. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think that might be a reasonable setup. Anyway, that's um, that's me. How are you doing? How am I doing? How's your I'm thriving good. social life? Thriving social life is great. Um, I was in Cambridge this these last few days for two May balls, mm. the Emmanuel College May Ball and the St John's College May Ball, which was quite good. Are they good? Yeah, yeah, pretty good. Just like same old Mayball vibes. Can you explain the Mayball concept? Because I never quite understood it. So basically, every so uh, as you as you may or may not know, uh, Cambridge University is made up of about thirty-one colleges, and either every year or every other year, each college puts on a ball in June, and they call this a Mayball for some reason. And this usually happens after everyone's exams are over and that kind of thing, and it happens during May week which is the final week of term, which is in June. Hmm. Um, and so each night there are a handful of May balls that are on. Okay. And the way a May ball works is that um, from nine o'clock at night until six o'clock in the morning, uh, the, the entire college is transformed into like a party zone. So these colleges have large amounts of grounds. So, at it, you know, they have marquees and tents and like concert hmm. marquee type things and, and stuff. And usually they have a bunch of music acts. Mm. They've got free food and drink throughout the night. A bunch of other entertainment-y type acts. A bunch of like photo stations. And, you know, at St. John's yesterday or the other day, there was a Ferris wheel. There were Dodgem cars. Mm. It basically transforms into like a carnival of sorts. Mm. And you dress up in black tie. Mm. And you go with your friends or with your, or with your loved ones or on your own. Probably not on your own. Uh and usually it's pretty hard to get tickets for each college because they're quite high in demand. Mm. And so if you're a member of the college, then you get priority for tickets. Yeah. Or if you happen to be on the committee, uh, or if you happen to have been on last year's committee, then you get yeah, rewarded sure. with the ability to buy tickets for next year's committee. Yeah. And it's all organized by the students and everything, but it's very much um, kind of sanctioned by the college because it's good, in particular for St. John's College, it's good publicity for them. Because um, I think Time Magazine rated it as like the seventh best party in the world mm. or something like that at some point. So everyone uses that as the reason mm. to be like, oh my God, St. John's College Mayball. Yeah. Okay, so here's the thing. All right, so I'm just going to say that I'm going to come across as like um, a bit of a, bit of a, twat. a bit of a twat when I say this stuff. Yeah. But I'm going to say it anyway. Am I right in saying that the point of, a, the point of Mayball is primarily not to make any friends, it's primarily to hang out with your friends? Correct. Right. Now, here's the thing. It never seems to me that hanging out with my existing friends in that kind of environment would be significantly more fun than hanging out with my existing friends in some kind of more reasonable environment, one that doesn't cost like 200 pounds, for example. What do you think is is the appeal of it? Okay, so, so for people who drink, there's a clear appeal of, of it, which is that you pay the money once and then there's unlimited alcohol throughout the night. Okay, yeah, and it's a nice setting. And it's a nice setting and you have alcohol throughout the night you have food throughout the night and you're just sort of hanging out with the friends for people who are into dancing there's a lot of music dancey music type things and so it's like a nightclub in a nicer environment okay yeah with like fancier dress yeah it's not like a sweaty with, dungeon no exactly <laughs> um so the appeal is clear for those sorts of people um for the rest of us uh it is honestly yeah it's it's not I mean, if I were to go to any, almost do any, do anything else for eight hours with friends, it would be just as fun, if not more fun than a Mayball. Okay. The Mayball is kind of just like a nice kind of novel, somewhat novel thing. Like at John's, for example, um, we went for the dining option, me and the gal. Mm. So we had like this fancy three course dinner, four course dinner or whatever before the thing. 
we also went for the breakfast option. So at three o'clock in the morning, we had this like fancy breakfast with like berries and scrambled egg and coffee and stuff. And it's just a generally nice, pleasant evening of like, hey, let's have dinner. We're going to have dinner. We're going to dress up. Then we're going to go to the Ferris wheel. Rafe Hubris was there. Um, oh, really? Sadly, sadly, we we missed him because the Ferris wheel put us on for twice as long as we should have been. But Mate. yeah, that was I was absolutely gutted when I, I saw when I saw him in the program. I was like, this is worth the price of admission. Yeah. And then yeah, apparently he he cut his his uh, set short as well. Really? Why? Um, I don't know. I mean, we 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 got there. We were like, we're going to get the last ten minutes, and as people were coming out, being okay. like, oh, it's finished now. Gutted. Yeah. So just generally nice time roaming around. Fine. Yeah. People can have their fun. <laughs> is, that, is that all right with you? <laughs> Um, anyway, man, the whole thing just seems a bit gimmicky to me. Like driving cars, that's cool, but like, I mean, it's like any sort of social event. It is somewhat gimmicky, but in a way, like the the point of know, social events is to be somewhat gimmicky. I don't think so, man. Like, yeah. I don't think most social events are gimmicky. <laughs> so, for example, a fancy dress party, yeah, uh, or a fancy dress party for adults, essentially. <laughs> Um, rather than for kids or even for kids like the fancy dress is a gimmick that adds some kind of a vibe to what is otherwise people hanging out and chatting to each other yeah and I think a Mayball is is similar in that oh or and there are more tangible benefits of it i.e. the food the alcohol and the rides and the entertainment and the music and the acts and mm. if you're into comedy there's always some kind of comedian set if you're into music there's always some kind of acoustic set or a drum set or like whatever yeah um, it's a program of activities so it's similar to you might go to one of those you know like uh, back in devices the devices carnival used to rock up every year yeah for a few days at a time with like ferris wheels and dodging cars and you can get candy floss and stuff yeah it's basically just that just, it happens at night when everyone's dressed like a twat rather than in the daytime uh, no further objections your honor whatever it's fine it's fine i don't mind it mm. you don't want to say what's on your mind I was going to say that the main thing that seems weird about it to me is that the only reason to do it is because it's a thing that people do. Hmm. You know, you never independently think, hmm, this is a good use of this amount of money and this is how I'd want to spend the evening. Uh, I think a lot of people would. Uh, possibly not good use of this amount of money, depending on well how much disposable income you have. But given that a lot of students seem to, three times a week, go to a sweaty dungeon to or rather go to a friend's room to drink a cheap beer and then go to a sweaty dungeon to dance the night away. Yeah, maybe I should don't understand that aspect of it, yeah. Yeah, that's a big part of the appeal. Yeah, okay, fine. I'm glad people had their fun yeah. in their May week. Excellent. So that's me, just chilling otherwise. Haven't made much progress on the book this last week because of all of the other social stuff that's been going on. Yeah. And next week, I am going to Morocco for a surfing and yoga camp. Wow. It's going to be fun. Four what? days worth of surfing lessons. Surfing lessons. Yeah. Oh, dude, that sounds sick. So surfing in the morning, yoga in the evening. Uh, yoga at 7.30 in the morning, followed by surfing, followed by surfing, followed by yoga in the evening. Are you going to be working or is this a holiday? I think it's a holiday, but I mean... How much do you work these days? All holidays involved. I feel, I feel like not a lot. You seem to be chilling a lot. That's, that's my life these days, mate. Yeah. Yeah. I chill a lot. That's great. Um... Is it guilt-free chilling? Or like when you're at the Mabel, or you're like, oh. oh, I could be writing right now. I could be writing. I should be writing my book. No, it's fairly guilt-free chilling. Um, I think I've arranged my calendar and built the team in a way that mm. um, facilitates me being being able to basically do what I want. And because I'm trying to embrace being a creative more, I'm I, I always just can just tell myself that oh, this is how creatives work. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what is a creative? You know, someone who is creative. 
<laughs> someone, someone who creates things. Because you know, there's that whole sort of um, kind of artist phenotype mm. of, you know, uh, so there's sort of two halves of this. There's one half of, there are some writers that are like, you know, I sit down and it's a job and I write mm. for four hours every single morning. Yeah. And yeah. there are others that I, oh, you know, I need to wait for the muse. I need to yeah. wait for inspiration to strike. Yeah. And so you're a muse bro now. I'm a, I'm, I'm a muse bro when I'm not doing work for me. Because <laughs> that's me waiting for the muse or recharging my batteries or, or whatever. Yeah. Um, and I was kind of thinking about it as well. It's, I think uh, whenever I feel the guilt, I just try and remind myself. It's just, you know, journey before destination. Yeah. Like, what am I, what am I trying to do all this work for? Yeah. Like, it's, it's fun and it hopefully helps people. But this is the thing that I want to be doing for the next 50 years of my life. Yeah. So yeah like, yeah. what's the rush? Yeah, you might as well. And if it's a yeah, the choice of going to a Mayball with the gal, then why not? Okay, okay. I back it. Yeah. I read a really good book recently. Maybe we could just go through some highlights now. Oh, the sexual revolution one. Yeah, it's called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. I'm, I'm surprised you brought that up. I, I was kind of I was kind of kidding. <laughs> Wait, what? Aren't you concerned you'll be cancelled by bringing that up? No, I don't think so. Um, mm. Okay, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. Tell me more. So the, the, the premise is... Sounds like a Hamza video. Who? Have you seen Hamza on YouTube? Hamza? Yeah. No. You Hamza should check out Hamza on YouTube. I'll send you a few links. He's um, like this um, 24-year-old um, somewhat Muslim dude who makes videos for young men to basically man up. Okay. Yeah. There's a, Yeah. I think there's a big like. I think on Twitter as well, there's lots of like how to be a good man kind of accounts. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Just like harking back to tradition a little bit. Indeed. Yeah. Quite trad values. Anyway. Uh, Wait, let me just get some milk and sugar in my coffee. You, you want milk drink. and sugar in the coffee? I can't drink it otherwise, dude. Maybe. In the meantime, I'm going to take the opportunity to tell you that um, enrollment for the part-time YouTuber Academy is opening soon, probably in a few days' time. So if you hit the link in the video description, you can get our free, completely free, seven-day-long email crash course. It's called the Part-Time YouTuber Crash Course, where every day for seven days, I send you like a freaking 2,000-word email that has a bunch of really, really, really useful advice and tips and strategies and stuff around how to become a part-time YouTuber, how to be a creator. And we've had a few responses to that email being like, oh my God, I would have paid for this. I can't believe it's free. Um, so you can sign up for the course if you would like, but if not, just sign up for the free email list and you'll get our little seven-day course completely free of charge. Uh, anything else I want to plug while Tamor's away? Oh, also, we recently launched a course called the Part-Time Creatorpreneur. Uh, basically the model of, and this whole brand called The Creatorpreneur. It's a Twitter account, it's a newsletter, an email newsletter as well. It's a podcast as well. Basically the idea is that we help creators be more like entrepreneurs. We help creators scale up their businesses and make more money. So if you are, for example, a creator, beyond the point of having just gotten started, if you have some amount of experience as being a creator, then if you hit the link in the video description or in the show notes, you can check out um, Creatorpreneur. And we will send you our Creatorpreneur, I think it's a five-day email course where we teach you about operations and systems and org structures and outsourcing and cash flow and funnels and the businessy type stuff that creators often don't really do much of. Yeah, because creators often think of themselves as creatives first, which is all very good, but don't even don't really think of themselves as business people. And if you're trying to make this, if you're trying to make money from this thing, then well, businesses have solved all these problems, been solving them for generations. And we can just co-opt a lot of the stuff from the world of business and apply it to the world of the creator. So yeah, hit the links in the video description or in the show notes and you can sign up completely free to these email lists if you would like. And if you, if you want, you can sign up to the course, but no pressure. All right. So the case against the sexual revolution, <laughs> it's a, it's a book of. written by a woman called Louise Perry. 
And the idea is basically that, you know, the sexual revolution that's been going on over the past, like, you know, 30, 40, whatever, 50 years. She basically argues... 70 years now, the 60s. Years. Okay, oh, damn, 70. No, 60, it's gonna be 60. All right, we'll go with 60. Thank you for that. The, the thing she argues is basically that this, on the face of it, was meant to help women, right? This was meant to, you know, give women more freedom, more autonomy, all that good stuff. But actually... All that this has done is, or not all, but like most of what this has done is actually just benefit men. Um, oh. And in the book, she kind of argues, argues her case. Um, so, she's think, argu- so she's arguing that the sexual revolution, by increasing the, uh, de- decreasing the social costs to sex and stuff, has bas- has broadly benefited men rather than women. Yes, exactly. Yeah, um, and actively harms women. Um, for the for the most part, and I, th- I think the book is very timely. I think I think now is a really good time because I sense I yeah I, I sense that the tide is turning. I think we're we are like probably at or even already post like peak sexual liberation, hookup culture, all this kind of stuff, where I think a lot of people are feeling like wait this is you know. I don't love this kind of thing. And so I think I think this book has come at the, at, at the right time where a lot of people are feeling something and it's going to like hit a ner- hit kind of a nerve with a lot of people and it's going to really resonate. So I think this book is going to be really big. Um is it new or what? Yeah, yeah, it's new. So it just came out, I don't know, like a few weeks ago. Oh, no way. Oh, I'll reach out to the author and invite her on the podcast. Yeah, yeah, you definitely should. Um yeah, I discovered it through a guy called Rob Henderson, who is one of the best Twitter follower follows I have ever done. Um, here, let me find his username. Rob Henderson. He's, I think I've heard him Rob cited by by Chris Williamson as uh, is he is he one of those how to be a better man right wingy type people? No, no, not at all. Isn't he? He's just he's a guy. I think he yeah, I think he's doing some kind of PhD in I don't know something, and he just seems to read a lot of books. And just post book highlights on Twitter. Like the number of books I've bought because Rob Henderson decided to tweet is like stupid. Anyway, a few months ago, he, it seems, had some kind of, you know, pre-release copy of this book. And yeah, like six months ago or five months ago or something, he tweeted like some highlights and some like pictures of like some pages of this book. And when I saw it, I was like, oh my God, what is this book? Um, and then I was, it was like, oh shit, it's not even out yet. And then I like set a reminder. Oh, this, what did I do? I think like I, I went on it on Kindle. Yeah, I kind of like pre-ordered it on Amazon or something. And then it came out a few weeks ago. I was like, oh my god. Um, so yeah, I definitely recommend following Rob Henderson, Rob K Henderson, um, on Twitter.com. But I mean, we haven't got a ton of time, but we can. Uh, yeah. So the book is called um, "The Case Against the Sexual Revolution: A New Guide to Sex in the 21st Century." Um, by Louise Perry. Uh, I'll just like read out some highlights. Sure, go for it. Oh yeah, <laughs> one thing that Rob did was he just like he took a picture of the um, he took a picture of the contents page <laughs> of just like the subheadings, and I was like, oh my god, this sounds really interesting. Uh, Do you want to read those out? What are the what are the subheadings of the contents page? All right, chapter one is titled "Sex Must Be Taken Seriously." Chapter two. Men and women are different. Chapter three, some desires are bad. Chapter wow. four. <laughs> Everything you're saying is, is so cancelable. <laughs> Chapter four, loveless sex is not empowering. Chapter five, consent is not enough. 
Chapter six, violence is not love. Chapter seven, people are not products. Chapter eight, marriage is good. And the conclusion chapter is called Listen to Your Mother. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> so pretty, you know, provocative stuff. Yeah. I mean, the only thing that won't, won't get you cancelled there is people are not products. I think everyone can agree with that. Everything else is, seems somewhat controversial. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, the atomized worker with no commitment to any place or person is the worker best able to respond quickly to the demands of the market. This ideal liberal subject can move to wherever the jobs are because she has no connection to anywhere in particular. She can do whatever labor is asked of her without any moral objection derived from faith or tradition. And without a spouse or family to attend to, she never needs to demand rest days or a flexible schedule. And then, with the money earned from this rootless labor, she is able to buy consumables that will soothe any feelings of unhappiness, thus feeding the economic engine um, with maximum efficiency. And then she says, um, liberal feminism takes this market-orientated ideology and applies it to specific issue uh, uh, applies it to issues specific to women um i can't remember why i highlighted that yeah i think her, her, her kind of like ideological background is that i think i think basically in her 20s she was very like liberal feminist kind of vibes and then i think now she's in her early 30s or something or she's in her 30s or something but yeah basically i think late 20s she started to feel like wait this is a little bit, this is a little bit weird. And I think she, so I think she was writing the book while she was also pregnant with her first kid, I think. And that also kind of changed the way she like viewed all of this stuff. Um, and so here we go. Let me read some more. I don't reject the desire for freedom. I'm not an anti-liberal and goodness knows that women have every reason to chafe against the constraints imposed on us by our societies and our bodies, both in the past and in the modern world. But I'm critical of any ideology that fails to balance freedom against other values. And I'm also critical of the failure of liberal feminism to in interrogate where our desire for a certain type of freedom comes from, too often referring back to a circular logic by which a woman's choices are good because she chooses them. Um, just like Sex and the City's Charlotte York yelping, I choose my choice, I choose my choice. Um, in this book, I'm going to ask and seek to answer some questions about freedom that liberal feminism can't or won't answer. Um, why do so many women desire a kind of sexual freedom that so obviously serves male interests? What if our bodies and minds aren't as malleable as we might like to think? What do we all lose when we prioritize freedom above, above all else? And above all, how should we act given all of this? Some of my conclusions might not be welcome, since they draw attention to the hard limits on our freedom that can't be surmounted however much we try. And I start from a position that historically has often been a source of discomfort for feminists of all ideological persuasions. I accept the fact that men and women are different and that those difference aren't, differences aren't going away. When we recognize these limits and these differences, then sexual politics takes on a different character. Instead of asking, how can we all be free? We must ask instead, how can we best promote the well-being of both men and women, given that these two groups have different sets of interests, which are sometimes in tension? Um, so is what she's saying that like, broadly, yes, it's all well and good, well and good for kind of women at large and men at large to be more free to have sex with one another without consequences. But that sort of thing actually benefits men way more than it benefits women because men would be are like, hell yes, that sounds sick. And women are like, uh, it sounds sick when I'm 18 to 23 and starts to sound less fun. Um, that point. No, no. So she, she actually argues that like, it's not even, it's not even broadly a good thing. Um, I think the the main one of the main points that she tries to make in the book is that like as a society we're we're in a place right now where we've kind of deluded ourselves into thinking that 
there are you know that that there are there are no differences between men and women um i think you know back in the day like i i think the the availability of easy and relatively safe contraception has contributed a lot whereas like basically like you know 100 200 years ago right like there were very obvious biological things that there weren't really like solutions for like i i don't know when like the pill came about but for example you know pre pre like pre like easy available the pill if you're a woman there's obviously a big risk of pregnancy when you have sex and therefore like that makes like sex this thing that isn't just like having you know having a bit of fun whenever you fancy it whereas if we have technology like the pill then it's like oh okay that biological limit like limitation is no longer there she also makes the interesting point that like because we are you know because we are the laptop class right because we're not using we're not broadly like using our physical bodies to do work uh it's also very easy to forget just what difference in strength there is between men and women like she has one like really stark highlight yeah a lot of, a lot of the book rests on this <clears throat> the unwelcome truth will always remain whether or not we can bear to look at it almost all men can kill almost all women with their bare hands but not vice versa that matters and so her point like a, a lot of the point that she makes was that like we we just can't ignore this fact okay yeah so she talks about this idea of sexual disenchantment where um you know the the general sense is that you know previously sex was seen as this like uh you know special thing meaningful thing something to moralize about you know this 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 kind of thing whereas over the past like 50 60 years um what the narratives have done is is disenchant sex is to try and make sex out to be just yeah, like any it's other just thing. any old activity it's just any it's old just activity like yeah yeah um um, yeah, and she says she says that this this sexual disenchantment benefits the Hugh Hefners of the world um, rather than like women. I'm going to argue in this book that Western sexual culture in the 21st century doesn't properly balance these interests. Instead, it promotes the interests of the Hugh Hefners of the world at the expense of the Marilyn Monroes. And the influence of liberal feminism means that too many women don't recognize this truth, blithely accepting Hefner's claim that all the downsides of the new sexual culture are just a small price to pay for personal freedom. She says, it is in their interest, you know, there being playboys like uh, Hugh Hefner, it is in their interest to push a particularly radical idea about sex that has come out of the sexual revolution and has proved remarkably influential despite its harms. This is the idea that sex is nothing more than a leisure activity invested with meaning only if the participants choose to give it meaning. Proponents of this idea argue that sex has no intrinsic specialness that is not innately different from any other kind of social interaction and that it can therefore be commodified without any trouble. Um, the sociologist Max Weber described the disenchantment of the natural world that resulted from the Enlightenment and the, uh, as the ascendance of rationality stripped away the sense of magic that this enchanted garden had once held for pre-modern people. In much the same way, sex has been disenchanted with the post, in the post-1960s West, leaving us with a society that ostensibly believes that sex means nothing. Sexual disenchantment is a natural consequence of the liberal privileging of freedom over all other values, because if you want to be utterly free, you have to take aim at any kind of social restrictions that limit you, particularly the belief that sex has some unique intangible value some specialness that is difficult to rationalize so i guess what she's saying is that like sex does in fact have this specialness that's difficult to rationalize and yeah. it is not in fact equivalent to playing squash yeah what are her reasons for this because i think i have also uh, you know when in my in my university days surrounded by um very liberal leaning people of all of all sorts um heard and believed the idea that yeah 
sex should just be is 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 purely a physical activity, just like playing squash. Therefore, all of all conclusions should follow from that. Um, but I think if 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 that pillar is removed and it's like, well, well, actually, sex is more sex is different to simply playing squash. Then I think a lot of the conclusions that follow from that then are invalidated. But I'm curious as to what her reasoning is. It's like other than people who engage in sex versus other physical activities quote just kind of know that it's a bit different um yeah has she has she got any i mean it depends what you mean by reason right like you know i'm sure there are some like physiological biochemical reasons why it might be different like like it depends what what kind of reason you're looking for um but i think the the general sense from the book is that like look just like look at look at the effects of like sex on people look at the effects of the current sexual culture on people and on society this is like starkly not playing squash <laughs> right that, yeah. that's that's like a, a big part of a point i mean here's an, here's an example so um well like playing squash doesn't result in people having their hearts broken people having feelings people yeah being susceptible, susceptible to significant acts of violence um, um yeah, so here's another highlight. The stories that came out of Me Too included plenty of unambiguously criminal behavior, but there were also a lot of women who described sexual encounters that were technically consensual, but nevertheless left them feeling terrible because they were being asked to treat as meaningless something that they felt to be meaningful. It sounds like she's saying that it takes it, it, it takes a lot of mental shenanigans to convince yourself yeah, that yeah, sex yeah. is equivalent to playing squash. Yeah. And you can find that, and you can see that from just the way people feel about it, and also the repercussions that it has on people's people and their lives in a way that a random ass other physical activity like playing squash wouldn't yeah yeah one student wrote for example uh this instance of hooking up with one of her peers yeah she said uh, she says like you know it shouldn't have been been a big deal it's just sex so i didn't want to make it one um essentially she had she had a sense of like hmm i really want to do this um but like she felt some pressure of like, oh, like why am I making this a big deal? Like this is it's just sex or whatever. Um, and and then my my highlight is it's just sex summarizes the sexual disenchantment idea perfectly. This young woman wasn't beaten, she didn't get pregnant, and she actually quite liked the young man that she had sex with at least at first. So why did she experience the sexual encounter as such a big deal? Because sexual disenchantment isn't actually true, and we all know it, including the liberal feminists who expend so much energy on arguing, for instance, that sex work is work. Um, so yeah, I think I think the like she doesn't really make any specific argument for like why sex is meaningful. I think it's like it's almost axiomatic. Yeah, I, I think she views it as pretty axiomatic, um, as just like something that we we all understand and that like mental gymnastics are not going to help with. Um, but she spends most of the book talking about like much more like tangible um, downsides of uh, of this stuff. So okay, let me come Yeah, she's very anti BDSM. Um, she says that some contributors yeah when it when it comes to uh sexual violence like a, lo a lot of people are actually um sort of encourage things that are, that are actively actively harmful to that so uh she says yeah this this individual person encourages rape survivors to seek out sexual partners with a taste for violence otherwise known as joining the bdsm community and this other person, Tina Horn, presents prostitution as a benign career route for young women. 
This is the central principle of liberal feminism taken to its logical conclusion. A woman should be able to do anything she likes, whether that be selling sex or inviting consensual sexual violence, since all of her desires and choices must necessarily be good, no matter where they come from or where they lead. And if anything bad comes from following this principle, then we return to the only solution that liberal feminism has to offer, which is to teach men not to rape. Oh yeah, one of, one of the more controversial things in the book is that there's this idea that like sexual violence and rape is not about sex it's actually about power um but i think she she well yeah one of the things she she tries to argue is that um actually this is not true it is it is always actually also about sex it turns out according to her yeah a few liberal feminists are willing to draw the link between the cultural culture of sexual hedonism they promote and the anxieties over campus rape that have emerged at exactly the same time if they did they might be forced to recognize that they've done a terrible thing in advising inexperienced young women to seek out situations in which they are alone and drunk with horny men who are not only bigger and stronger than they are but are also likely to have been raised on the kind of porn that normalizes aggression coercion and pain but in liberal feminist circles you're not supposed to talk about the influence of online porn or bdsm or hookup culture or any of the of the other malign elements of our new sexual culture because to do so would be to question the doctrine the, the doctrine of sexual freedom so young women are fo forced to learn for themselves that freedom has costs and they're forced to learn the hard way every time hmm the, the advice I'm offering applies almost exclusively to heterosexuals, but particularly heterosexual women, because the effect of the sexual revolution on relations between the sexes is the subject of this book. And none of it is groundbreaking. Anyone who's spent enough time living in the world and learning from her mistakes should be able to cobble together a set of rules that, rules that look much like mine. But while a lot of my advice will seem common sense to most older readers, my experience of talking face to face with men and women under the age of 30 is that it is shocking enough to make a person's jaw drop, literally. Oh, okay. Um, this is, All right, this here is we go. rules. Um, yeah, maybe, I mean, just being mindful of time, um, maybe I'll end, I'll end pretty soon. Uh, yeah. And she, she says, she says herself, I would have probably been just as shocked a decade ago because I didn't know any of this when I was a younger woman. Um, she said, I thought stupidly that I understood life better than anyone else as teenagers typically do. And I realized my mistake only years later, having learned the hard way and having watched my friends do the same. Um, this wasn't because my friends or uh, my parents or other adults in my life failed me far from it. And I wasn't in any way unusual among my peers, but I was raised in a liberal environment that lent too heavily on a simplistic progress narrative of history. And the problem with this narrative is that it, encourage us, it encourages us to ignore both the ways in which things have become worse over time and the advice offered by older generations. Um, C.S. Lewis coined the phrase chronological snobbery to describe the critical, uh, the uncritical acceptance of the intellectual climate of our own age and the assumption that whatever has gone out of date is on that count discredited. Oh yeah, this is quite funny. In 2016, an extract from a 1950s home economics book offering tips to look after your husband went viral on social media. The housewife in the 1950s was advised that when her husband got home from work, she should have dinner on the table, her apron off and a ribbon in her hair, and that she would should always make sure to let her husband talk first. This advice was not unusual for housewife manuals of the time, or indeed those of earlier eras, all of which advised women to make their housekeeping look effortless, hiding grime and exertion from their menfolk. How reactionary we think now, how stupid and, and backward. But then take a look at a small sample of Cosmopolitan magazine guides published within the last decade. Um, subtitles, 30 ways to please a man, 20 ways to turn on your man, um, or how to turn him on, 42 things to do with a naked man. Um, in what sense are these guides not encouraging precisely the same degree of focus on male desires, except in this case, it is sexual pleasure rather than domestic comfort. The only difference I can now see... <laughs> I'm going to say... <laughs> <The only difference laughs> 
That's going to be good. The only difference I, I could see is that the arse licking is now literal. <laughs> wow. Good. All right, we gotta we gotta R rate this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Women are still expected to please men and to make it look effortless. But while the 1950s angel of the house hid her apron, the modern angel of the bedroom hides her pubic hair. This waxed and willing swan glides across the water, concealing the fact that beneath the surface she is furiously working to maintain her image of perfection. Um, she pretends not to mind when the friends with benefits arrangement causes her pain. I've spoken to women who've suffered from um various things for years without telling their partners i've also spoken to women who's ha who've had abortions after hookups and never told the men who impregnated them because while sharing the inside of their bodies was expected revealing the inconvenient fact of their fertility felt too intimate um we've smoothly transitioned from one form of feminine subservience to another but we, we pretend that this one is liberation oh liberal ideology flatters us by telling us that our desires are good and that we can find meaning in satisfying them whatever the cost but the lie of this flattery should be obvious to anyone who's ever realized after the fact that they were wrong to desire something and hurt themselves or hurt other people in pursuing it so i'm going to propose an alternate alternative form of sexual culture one that recognizes other human beings as real people invested with real value and dignity it's time for a sexual revolution so with regards to the men and women being different she says in the modern west it has become increasingly possible to become detached from the sexually dimorphic body when one does not do a manual job compete in sports or bear children but the unwelcome truth will always remain whether or not we can bear to look at it almost all men can kill almost all women with their bare hands but not vice versa and that matters all right yeah in some desire is a bad chapter she talks about yeah just like sort of moral intuitions um so like you know there's this like example of like you know is it okay for a brother and sister to have sex um if they use contraception no one knows about it um is it okay for a man to consent to being eaten by another man for the purposes of sexual gratification? She says, social conservatives generally give swift, confident answers to these questions because they're able to appeal to values such as sanctity and authority. Mm. For them, having sex with a dead chicken or a sibling obviously violates religious or traditionalist moral principles and is therefore unacceptable. End of story. Liberals have more difficulty. They want to say that the acts are wrong because they are instinctively disgusted by them, but the scenarios are designed to prevent, uh, prevent any appeal to J.S. Mill's harm principle, which is the only purpose for which power can be rightfully exercised over any member of a civilized community against his will is to prevent harm for others. In the chicken example, for instance, it's difficult to identify anyone who's been harmed by the bad's behavior, since the chicken being dead can't be harmed, and other people not knowing about the acts can't be harmed either. This is about the man having sex with dead chicken. The man is simply exercising his sexual autonomy, which which means that, as uh, Jonathan Hyde puts it, if your moral matrix is limited to the ethic of autonomy, then you're at higher risk of being dumbfounded by this case. Mm. Yeah, I think we talked about this when we uh, like two years ago when we did yeah, the, the right yeah. mind, yeah, like the the moral taste receptors. Yeah, yeah, I've used I've I've used that example example with a lot of people now since since then. Um, it's always interesting mm. how people are stimmied by <laughs> trying to argue why someone having sex with a dead chicken is wrong. Yeah, yeah without recourse to sanctity d d the idea of sanctity or degradation or mm, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah basically th that yeah yeah um yeah then she talks about how sex has kind of become this free market and and basically the fact that there is this obvious asymmetry between men and women when it comes to sex and therefore if we try and push like our obvious asymmetry is in th there's an asymmetry in like what sex is like for men and women because of physical differences and so on right like okay um and so she says that like you know in in the presence of this uh, of, of of an asymmetry like this if you then try and push like 
absolute equality and autonomy for everyone like one party is going to get screwed over so she, she says equality implies the deliberate acceptance of social restraints upon individual expansion um, it involves the pre prevention of sensational extremes of wealth and power by public action for the public good if liberty means therefore that every individual shall be free according to his opportunities to indulge without limit his appetite for either it is clearly incompatible not only with economic and social but with civil and political equality um, which also prevent the strong exploiting to the full advantages of their strength um, she says freedom for the pike is death for the minnows basically like if you like if you care about equality you have to like restrict some people's stuff right if, if equality is what you care about you do have to restrict some people's stuff um Oh, in some but, people's power. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, sure. But if if, if freedom is what you care about, then you're going to be screwing over the, you know, the weaker group or whatever. Like if, I guess, pike and minnows are both fish. If the pike is free, if, uh, if the pike is free, the minnows are going to get, get eaten. That's right? mm. what she's saying. Ooh, interesting. Any historical event as radical as the sexual revolution is going to have a diverse range of effects, both positive and negative. But the key point that I want to stress in this book is that it is wrong to interpret this historical period as, a, as an example of progress in any straightforward sense. I am a progress apostate. I do not believe that there's, there's such thing as the gradual, inevitable marching towards the good that Martin Luther King Jr. first so famously described in his uh, arc of the moral universe, bending towards justice speech. Uh, every social change has trade-offs which are obscured by a simplistic narrative that leaves no space for uh for complexity mm. um yeah this, this equality freedom point is interesting so she's because it, like like if you're optimizing for equality then or, or or equity or or anything like that then you know that gets us into the discussion around equality of opportunity equality of outcome yeah and if you're optimizing for equality of outcome certainly there's a large amount of uh you've got to curtail the freedoms of the powerful people essentially yeah. yeah because left unchecked the powerful people just get more powerful the rich get more rich yeah but if you're optimizing for freedom you're not you're then not allowed to curtail the freedom of anyone yeah and therefore just by default the rich get richer and the powerful get more powerful and the poor get poorer yeah so how does how does she tie that into the sexual revolution um is she arguing that be given that instead of optimizing for equality between the sexes we have in fact optimized for freedom and freedom has benefited the more powerful party I, yeah so she's, she's she's not arguing this This is a quote from our, an uh, economic historian okay. from 1931 about how equal, equality implies like people accepting restraints like to make things equal for everyone hmm. but liberty which is about making people free um is clearly incompatible with that yes and so like like you know ostensibly society does want equality between the sexes but um you know society seems to care a lot about the sort of liberal project of making everyone free and that actually goes against the equality thing and her whole book is arguing how like yeah the, the sexual revolution um increases the inequality between men and women yeah she says that the sexual thatcherites do not recognize the delicate and relational nature of a sexual culture and therefore cannot see that society is composed of both pikes and minnows as well as people who might play both roles at different times their analysis can only understand people as freewheeling atomized individuals all looking out for number one um and all up for a good time thus when they see a taboo against say having sex with chicken corpses they assume that if no obvious purpose for the taboo springs to mind it must therefore be unnecessary 
Um, they falsely assumed that with all such taboos removed, we would all be liberated and capable of making entirely free choices about our sexual lives, sampling from a menu of delightful options made newly available by the sexual revolution. Yeah, she also talks about how, like, it has not just been, like, this straightforward thing of, like, um, oh, yeah, just, like, give people more freedom, remove these taboos, and everything gets better. Um, like, there's been, there's been, like, major hiccups along the way where, like, we, we would look on things now from like you know 30 40 years ago and be like whoa they they were clearly off base there um for example in 1977 a petition to the french parliament calling for the decriminalization of sex between adults and children was signed by a long list of famous intellectuals including jean-paul sartre jacques derrida much more people simone de beauvoir um deleuze um yeah michael foucault um, michel foucault um like in 1977, these like, you know, radical thinking types thought that, hmm, it's a good idea to de decriminalize sex between adults and children. And I mean, presumably that wasn't between like an adult and a five-year-old. It was presumably reducing the age of consent from like 16 to 13 or... Yeah, I, yeah. I, I would imagine it's sort of a bit less extreme than that sounds. Yeah. It's but even so, it's it's, still it's, like, it's less extreme than that sounds, but it's like... Yeah, if you think about it now, you're like, hey, it's very what? easy to go off. Like, at the time for these people, I'm sure, you know, it was probably in line with whatever the ideologies were that were floating yeah. around of like, oh, this is the next logical step and this is fine. Yeah. And like, we might well be in that position now. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah, in, yeah, yeah, I've always kind of wondered about this in the sense of in the medical world, there's this idea of like kind of a Fraser competence or Gillick competence, which is basically like if you are above 12, but under 16 yeah. and you want to consent to a medical treatment, then you can, and your parents can't then stop it. Provided you show that you are of sound mind and are able to kind of weigh up the pros and cons of the decision, et cetera, et cetera. Um, whereas by default, an under 16 it, it cannot consent to medical treatment until unless the parent consents to it on their behalf yeah because it's just assumed that oh until you hit the age of 16 which is this arbitrary line yeah that hang on this is a bit weird right right but then you know you ran into cases where a, a 14 year old or a 15 year old wanted contraception mm. but the parent said no because sex is bad yeah and now well obviously it, it it is better for a 15 year old to be having sex with contraception rather than without contraception yeah just like fairly uh non-controversially right um and therefore these extra rules and laws kind of came about um but it's very it it becomes very uneasy when talking about it from then the sexual consent point of view mm. that why is it that a 15 and a half year old can reasonably consent to certain types of things including yeah. medical things that completely change the body forever yeah uh but not consent to having sex with a 16 and a half year old yeah and it's like where do you kind of draw it, it just starts to get into very very murky territory yeah um which is not easy to square with the narrative that like you know provided people are consenting then do what you want yeah kind of vibe and if you argue well they're not adults yet it's like 16 is such an arbitrary threshold yeah it's that that number has differed and continues to differ amongst all different societies today yeah. and in the past like why is that the arbitrary number yeah um, but I, I, yeah, I've I've never really been able to square that in my mind. Haven't haven't thought too much about it. But yeah, it's always struck me as something that's a bit a bit strange. Mm. But I guess what um, she would argue in the book is that well, it's it feels strange because you, because we intuitively know that sex is a bigger deal than right, other right. things. Yeah, 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 and 
it's just incompatible with liberal ideology that that's true. And therefore you start running into all of these areas of like, oh, hang on, that feels wrong, but I can't quite explain why. Um, and the sort of uh, moral principles that I kind of normally justify things by, i.e. harm and equality and freedom. Yeah. Duh, yeah, it's, but, yeah it's, but it's a bit tricky. Basically, if, 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 if you're playing by the rules of like the the ideologically uh, ideologies that are floating around right now like there's there's no way to sort of intellectually justify a lot of these things right like you you can't appeal to you know cons it's consensual like no one's, no one's being harmed etc like um you know you there's there's no like intellectual move you can make in this in in this argument um apart from um appealing to like empiricism which is like hey 40 years on let's look back at like all the data and all the anecdotes and all of what's been going on and we can now see that this causes harm <laughs> so let's stop doing it basically mm. um, i think that's that's basically the only move that you can make and that's what her book is kind of that that's the move her book is making um of like look hold up we all we all know right fundamentally that this stuff is not true, right? Like, yeah. we can all feel it. <laughs> Let's look at, like, the effects. Uh, uh, yeah, I think we're probably better in things there. Yeah, we have interesting stuff. Today. Um, um, I will check the book out. I bought it on Kindle. Yeah, honestly, one, one, reach out to the author one of the most interesting she wants books to, I've read in, like, yeah, in, like, the past few years. Sick. The Case Against Sexual Revolution by Louise Perry. Um, cool. We'll stick a link to that in the video description in the show notes if anyone else wants to check it out. And, yeah. If anyone fancies emailing, emailing us uh, rebuttals to anything she said, then that would be greatly appreciated as well. Um, but yeah, thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. That's it for another episode of Not Overthinking. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to leave a review for us over at Apple Podcasts. That'll be linked in the video description or in the show notes. And we do often read reviews at the end of each episode if you'd like to hear yours read out. Also, in case you didn't know, we also have a YouTube channel where we post videos of the podcast. So if you'd like to see us, uh, and not just hear us, you can check us out on our YouTube channel. And feel free to connect with us over at Twitter. All of the various details, including the podcast Twitter account, and Overthinking, and our personal Twitter accounts, will be in the video description and in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.